We thank you, Lord, for your word to us and for the story that you tell us. We ask, Lord, that it would be food for our soul, light for our path, as it is every day. Amen. Um, Once upon a time, apparently, there was a couple who were celebrating a significant wedding anniversary. They'd been married for decades, and of course, someone said, what's the secret? And, And the answer was this. You see, well, they said, you need to understand, even if you're married to one person all your life, you'll actually be married to many. What they meant in this was that the deepest relationships are never static. They evolve and deepen as time goes on. So when Jill and I were married, we were young and foolish. At least I was. And, uh, And we were full of dreams. And now we're old, chastened, but hopefully deepened by life's realities. And the thing is, if I tried to love Jill in the same way as I did when I was 21 years old, I wouldn't actually be loving her. Does that make sense? Right? Because she and I are different. And And even as things change, there's also a sense in which things stay the same. Because that dynamic of relationship actually deepens us as we tap into that which is more stable and more real. For instance, in 1995, I promised to Jill something about in sickness and in health. And 20 years later, we reaffirmed our vows and I said the same words. But this time I couldn't do it without crying because I knew what it meant. Something had shifted and something had stayed the same all at the same time because I knew what those words meant. That's why marriage vows aren't about a declaration of present love. They're actually a commitment for future love. Well, perhaps they're both. But my point here isn't to be soppy and romantic, even though I do that so well for 25 years. Um, It's to illustrate something. In the depths of real relationship, there is this dynamic stability and it's the same when it comes to our journey with God. Some of us are still full of youthful religious zeal. Some of us have weathered storms. Some of us once followed God with a set of presumptions that have ended up feeling like wearing someone else's clothes and we've had to find our own place in the story. As we worship and as we pray and as we follow God, we grow and change and are deepened and our following of Jesus is dynamically stable. While things change as we grow, we find ourselves tapping into the deeper things, that which confronts us, uh, undoes us and remakes us. And so this is why I bring this up. It's my instinct that the weeks and the the months and the years ahead to live the way of faith, to be on that relationship journey with Jesus, both individually and together, is not going to be simple. Apart from anything else in this world, the social constructs in which church exists, the thing in society that says this is what church is for, this is what it's all about, And even the validity of faith itself is going to be shaken and tested. And even if this year turns out to be the most boring, uneventful year ever, 
we're all going to still be on a discipleship journey with Jesus and we will be shaken and deepened and stirred on that journey. So what I'm hoping we can do right here at the beginning of the year, and this is why I'm speaking before the reading, is to hope that we might lean into this expectation that we are going to grow and be deepened in our faith with Jesus. And we can do that by understanding that there'll be both growth and deepening. There'll be dynamic and stable, dynamically stable. And one of the ways to do this is to lean into our origin story, to know the story as the dynamic of our relationship with God. The analogy is still there. Look again at relationships. Husbands and wife, parents with children, siblings, whatever it might be, those sorts of relationships are dynamic in how they are always growing. And they are stable in how they have a depth of knowing. It's expressed like this. When you know someone in relationship, you look at them and you can say, I know your face. I know you. And it's often expressed with story and narrative. Remember when this happened? I saw this in you. Remember when you learned that. This is where we've come from. This is what we've passed through. This is who we are. This is the story, the narrative. It's what we grow out of and into. It's both dynamic and stable. Let's explore it together. So that's the hope for this first part of our year, to look at our origin story so that we, in our growing, we find ourselves in the knowing of God and his knowing of us. So we're going to be looking at Genesis over the next few weeks and we'll find there some of those age-old, never-changing things. It might disconcert us. We may have changed since the last time we looked at this. I don't know when was the last time you read Genesis, but it may be that you have shifted now. Just like when you read Harry Potter for the first time, you found yourself Hermione and now you feel like Hagrid. That's okay. Right? It's still the same story and we can find stability and dynamics at the same time. We're going to look at the first bit today, the first bit over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 1 to 12. Now be aware, before we get into it and read it, that this is the part of the Bible that has the depths of prehistory. These are the stories of legend, or perhaps we more accurately should say myth, because myth can be true. And we will encounter that truth on this journey. After chapter 12, when we get to Abraham, it all gets a bit different. History flows through Abraham and onto the present day in a slightly different way. But in chapters 1 to 11, we have this narrative framework on which it all rests. We have our origin story. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to see the dynamics of creation. We're going to see what went wrong. We will see the heart of God in response. We will see brothers at war. We'll see the world flooded. We'll see empires rising. And all the time, we will see God loving and nurturing and intervening and offering of himself. And we're going to start today at the very beginning. Don't be scared of this. In my day, whenever we talked about Genesis 1, someone would start bringing up the evolution versus creation debate. We are not going there today. This isn't that kind of story. Instead, what we'll see is a cosmically scaled relational narrative. 
in which God says to us, I know your face. I know you. Now come grow with me. So we're going to have our reading, uh, which uh, Stella's going to bring. Um, if you have a Bible on your phone, do that. We're not going to look at all of chapter 1. Stella's going to read the beginning and the end of it. Um, but if you have your Bible with you, it might be helpful. Thanks, Stella. So we're starting at the first verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And now we move to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Stella. Um, if you do have a Bible with you on your phone or in paper form, feel free to have it open. Um, Stella read the beginning and the end. There is a whole bunch of stuff in the middle between those two in Genesis chapter 1. And what we have, you see, is between the two is a sequence of days. I don't know how familiar you are with it. Um, I'm encouraging you over these next few weeks, be reading Genesis 1 to 11 in all its glory. But what we have in Genesis 1 as as a big picture is this sequence, a sequence of days. Light is created and brings about the first day And then there is this sequence of creation which takes place as a a sequence of distinctions being made. Distinctions inserted by God into that which is formless and void. Now at this point, with unashamedly, I'm going to let slip that I am a computer nerd. And uh, I'm going to talk about how what God is doing at this point is he is inserting information into that which is formless and void. Let me demonstrate. Here I have a blank piece of paper. It is formless and void. 
The only thing that this asserts is its simple existence. If I want to express my creativity on this piece of paper, I do something like this. I make a mark. I insert a distinction between that which is blue and that which is white. It doesn't say much. I'm not a very creative person because I'm a computer nerd. But now I can talk about things like being above the line or below the line or inside the line or outside the line. There is creativity on this page now because of the distinction that I have made. Does that make sense? Right. So what we see is you see this sequence of distinctions is a divinely scaled form of a mark on a piece of paper. What we have firstly is we see that God makes the distinction between light and dark. And then he makes a distinction between uh, night and day. And then across the waters that are formless and void, he makes a distinction between the waters below and the skies above. And then within the lower part, he makes this distinction between that which is called land, the dry place, and that which is called the sea, the wet place. Each separated but connected, a place of joyful harmony in which creativity can happen. And then on the land, vegetation is made. Each distinct plant with differences according to their various kinds, you see. It's not just a blob of vegetation. It's the gloriousness of an eggplant or the gloriousness of an artichoke or a redwood tree. They're different, and that's what makes creativity. And then in the skies, he has the stars and the sun and the moon in their place to pierce the dark void with their light in a way that brings the information of God's glory. He inserts meaning into the skies. And then he fills the air with birds and the seas with fishes. And on the last day, he commands the land to produce all sorts of living creatures. Can you see the glory of what he is doing? It's like God has filled in the blank canvas with distinction after distinction. He speaks the information of his creative heart and his ideas spring forth like colors on a canvas. He is expressing himself with brushstrokes of light and life. And each step along the way as he makes these distinctions, he declares, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then finally, on the sixth day, just as he has made the living creatures, God makes one more different thing. He declares his intent in verse 26, which Stella wrote. Let us make humankind. Let's make this one, this lot, in our own image, in our own likeness. And he does so. And he appoints these humans, because it's a collective noun here, into acting like he is acting, exercising their own creativity just like he is as carers and stewards of the fish and the birds and the livestock and the wild animals and all the rest of it. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God doesn't just say this was good. He says this was very good. It's only then, at this moment, that the story concludes in chapter 1. 
with his own self poured out, it is finished. So God rests on the seventh day. He rests and draws his creation into that rest, into a place of shalom, peace, harmony, worship, joy. All of it is very good. And that is our origin story. So what can we draw from it? How does that look us in the eye and remind us of that which is dynamically stable and true? How does this look us in the eye and say, I know you. You know yourself in this. How does this invite you into further growth, further change, further life? How are we known by this story and how do we know more by this story? Just a few things I want to draw out. The first thing is this, the goodness of God is utterly evident in this story. Perhaps it would help us if we understood how this narrative would have spoken to those who first heard it literally thousands of years ago, because it's not the only origin story that humans have told. The other stories, though, are very different. Consider the creation myth of the Sumerian gods, a story that was dates from about the same time as Genesis. In that mythology, there are seven great gods and many lesser, god, many lesser gods. And as in the way of things, the lesser gods serve the greater gods with menial work. And as is the way of things, they rebel against their toil and they set themselves up for armed conflict. But as a way of settling the dispute, the decision is made to create humans as slaves so they can do the work. And so they do this by slaughtering one of the gods, mixing the blood of the god with clay, and humankind is formed like a bunch of golems. What would that story say to who you are? And similar stories abound. In the pantheon of gods and mythologies, there are battles and sexual affairs and all sorts of intrigues, and humanity falls out of the story like a bit part, an accident of fickle deities. We are slaves in these stories, playthings, corruptions, products of divine pathos or cosmic chaos. That's the story that would have been told. Imagine those who have been having that story being told this one. Sometimes we forget the true story ourselves. Sometimes I wonder if we slip into the sort of futility that would come out of this sort of story. Certainly there are narratives that run around in this day and age that posit a similar set of narratives in which there is no goodness of God or anything else. A narrative that posits that humanity is existentially evil. Who are we? We're the destroyers of the planet. Who are we? We're the ones who can't be trusted. We are a cancer, a scourge, a mistake. We're the Borg, effectively. There's a reason why science fiction tells stories like that. We're a virus. In fact, it would be best for us to be diminished, reduced in numbers. The world would be better off without us. Perhaps Thanos was right. We bring no meaning 
No virtue with our existence. We're just consumers, a drain on society. The best we can hope for is to eat, drink, and be merry and try not to damage others too much on these short years of what will ultimately be a temporary human ascendancy. And if God made us, then God must be a maniac or evil. We should take life and death out of his hands. And it doesn't take much to imagine how you unfurl that narrative and you land in some of the ethical conundrums of our day. And they are age-old stories that were told thousands of years ago. But our story, similarly ancient, is different. God is good, and what he does is good. And unlike some meaningless meaningless cosmic tragedy, we can look at what we see. Each step of the story in chapter 1 is ordered, deliberate, intentional, beautiful, artistry. It's not chaos. It's intense. We're not meaningless. We're not a ma on the canvas. God expresses his heart and we are at the center of it. The whole story builds up to the moment where God breathes us into life and he defines us not against himself but in relation to himself. And it's only when we are made that the creation is very good and God leans into the shalom of his rest. So God is good. We learn that from this story. And creation reflects his goodness. A second point. Creation is good because it reflects his divine intent. What that means is we can look at ourselves. We can look at our hands. We can look at our feet. We can do the up and downy thing that we did earlier. And we can look into our heart. And we can hear the word of God speak our story. And he says, I know you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The story values us. The imagery we see in this story isn't just about some snap of the fingers creation. We do have a beginning moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bang, done. But the story doesn't end there. We have this story as one of careful preparation. It's like God takes the universe creates a space, creates some land, puts in some vegetation and some food, like a parent preparing a nursery for a child. Let's put a sky and some sea, let's make sure they've got everything they need. Or perhaps a bridegroom preparing a home for his bride, that's an image that gets caught up later on in the Bible. There's an intent and a purpose and hope in this story. It's full of virtue. Some think of it like this, of God preparing the earth like a temple. Again, creating the space, placing within it all the tools of worship, the sun and the moon and the stars and the light to bear witness. And if any, anyone at the time had heard this story, they would go, yes, I get that. There's a temple. And at the heart of every temple, what you do in the most holy place, you would put an icon or a statue, something that bears the image of God who is resident there. And God does that. He makes the world and all that's in it. And at the most holy place, he makes the image of God. Us. His fullest expression. His greatest outpouring. And so this story looks at us and says, I know you. It's not yours to hide in the dark. 
It's yours to reveal the divine heart, to point to God himself. You get to worship by simply being, creating as he created, offering yourself as he has offered. Whatever glory lies in eternity is reflected, captured, mirrored, embraced, imaged in you. The story says, I know who you are. So this story values us. And finally, this story grounds us with a profound truth that we are so quick to forget. It grounds us by declaring that God's love for us is physical. What he has made is good. He loves you, and that means he loves your body. His is not a platonic love. Hear me out on that. Much of the Western world, you see, lives in a philosophical story in which the narrative is one in which body is bad and mind is good. The philosopher Plato was one who thought that truth and perfection could only be found in the mind, in the place of ideas and perfect concept, unconstrained by the imperfections of what we see in the physical. And that's why we talk about a platonic relationship. It's where two people uh, interact intellectually about ideas, almost in a disassociated way. Platonic doesn't mean non-sexual, it means non-physical. But that's not how God loves. Ultimately, we see it in the fullness of time, in the incarnation. God puts on flesh and loves us not only with his intent and his ideas, but with muscles that move and vocal cords that resonate. And ultimately, he loves us with groaning breaths and nail-scarred hands and muscles that spasm in pain. And he doesn't just make us a body box and put perfection inside it. He makes the whole thing good. He breathed us into life and said, this is very good. So physicality matters. When we love, we love physically. We shake hands, we embrace, we offer cups of tea, not with our ideas, but with these things. We take our bodies and we put them where they can help and care and reveal the glory of God. When our bodies are broken, we are broken. And so we express love by helping those who are frail because we're not just loving someone's body, we're loving them. We lean into the weakness of our bodies and love and vulnerability intertwine. When bodies are injured, we use our bodies to seek justice. You see, to pursue God's journey, to grow in this dynamic, stable relationship, isn't just about believing in ideas. It's not just about acknowledging some ethereal concept. It's not about some platonic propositions of possible perfection. It's about how we respond to his love with all of us, with our bodies included. Discipleship is about what we will do with our hands and what we'll do with our voices and how we will manage our limitations How will we use ourselves, our physical selves? And how will we let God love us? This year, over the summer, I was facing the fact that there was trauma in my body. My brain was functioning in a way that would protect my body from various adversities. That adversity, of course, we're going to look at. 
God creates something good and we're going to hear the story down the track about where things go wrong. But there's still goodness here. And my body in its goodness was defending me from adversity. But that put trauma in my body. And I had to learn to entrust my body to him. Not just my head, not just my heart, not just my moral self, but all of me. My safety in his hands. And safety is ultimately a physical thing. But none of that dynamic of life and joy and growth can flow if we despise how God has made us and say that he is wrong when he looks at us and says, this is very good. We are made in his image. That is who we are. And I could go on. I'm not going to. These origin stories are so deep we could spend hours and hours looking at them. But here's the thing. It's not some fairy tale in which it's my job to lead you into some cliche moral of the story. It's a landscape to invite you into. So I'm going to encourage you, pick up and read the story over these next few weeks. It may have been a while. You may have changed a lot since you last read it. But let it speak to you. To look at you and say, I know who you are. And you will find that there is dynamic change and growth. And it rests on stable truth. In this story is the heart of God who truly, truly knows you. So I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, the word says that at the beginning you were there and all things were made through you. You are the word that brings life. You are the one who put marks on the page. And in that intricate detail of difference and differentiation, you made that which is uniquely us, us as individuals, us as a fellowship in this place, this generation, this point of history. And lords, we know that there is more of the story to come and we will hear of what is broken and bad, but it begins with a declaration of your goodness, your goodness reflected in the goodness you've put in us. So, Lord, help us to have ears to hear as we pick up this story again. Help us to know you and to be known by you as we entrust ourselves to you again. In Jesus' name, amen.